Welcome to the 189th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Beth Cato, author of the steampunk novels, The Clockwork Crown and The Clockwork Dagger. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Beth Cato. Beth's debut novel, The Clockwork Dagger, has just been published. Beth, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, can I have you read the first couple of pages of The Clockwork Dagger? Absolutely. Octavia Leander's journey to her new source of employment was to be guided by three essential rules. That she hide her occupation, lest others take advantage, that she be frugal with her coin and avoid indulgences that come with newfound independence, and that she shun the presence of men as nothing useful or proper could possibly happen in their company. Not ten feet from being let out of her carriage, Octavia was prepared to shatter Miss Percival's most strongly advised first rule. The dog was but a puppy, round tummy swaying and tail wagging. It had rolled in the middle of the busy roadway and then chased after a chugging steam car. Along the elevated wooden boardwalk on the other side of the road, a little girl cried, tears leaving clean streaks in the gray filth of her face. A broken leash draped from her hand. Even through the portside din of bells and motors and murmuring humanity, Octavia could hear the joyful barks of the puppy. She also heard the sharp crunch and the guttural howl. Seconds later, the klaxons and discordant notes of fresh trauma rang faintly in her ears. Urgent healings of dogs and other small creatures, such as children, only invited grief. Miss Percival's advice echoed in her mind. You are a businesswoman, not a charity worker. Those canine notes of pain pierced through any armor offered by rationality. Fiddlesticks, Octavia muttered beneath her breath. She glanced both ways. It was a busy avenue, four lanes thick, the traffic a mixture of horses, steam cabriolets, and automated cycles, all of them stirring up a thick cloud of dust. The fumes stung her nose and burned in her eyes. She could no longer see the dog. No matter, the cry of fresh blood would call her forth. Octavia set her satchel atop a rolling case and strapped the two together, then pulled forth her parasol. She flared it open to reveal cloth of brilliant blue with a white lace trim. Stabbing the parasol forward as a bright shield, she stepped into traffic. A chorus of steam horns, like maddened geese, deafened her. A workman leaned out of his lorry and swore. Octavia refused to meet his eye. The wails of the body in need guided her around the backside of Cabriolet. She spied the filthy lump of mutt just ahead, not far from the fidgeting hoofs of a drayman's carriage. By Kevin's bastards, are you mad? snarled the driver from his high seat. His body song burbled sour notes of infection. Octavia didn't deem him worthy of reply. In a graceful gesture, she shut the parasol and hooked it on her luggage strap. She snapped off her gloves and tucked them into a satchel pocket, then scooped up the fat pup. It whined and tried to struggle, the cries of its blood louder than the vocalizations. The dog's side was caved in and bore the distinct narrow track of an automated cycle. Tucking the puppy against her hip, she strode toward the walkway, her suitcase bouncing with each rut. 
A few more horns blared, and then the rattle of traffic resumed. On the boardwalk again, the reality of what she had done caused her knees to quiver. The puppy needed me, but I didn't need to nearly kill myself in the process. Lady, what was I thinking? Now here she was, burdened by luggage with a dying puppy on her hip, soiling her best new dress. Only new dress, actually. It was a good thing the cloth was a deep burgundy. However foolish Octavia's actions, Miss Percival's first rule of travel still held true. Octavia couldn't advertise the fact that she was a Medician. Shops and strolling merchants lined the boardwalk. Pedestrians swerved around Octavia and didn't otherwise react to her presence, as though well-dressed young ladies often hold about bleeding animals. So many bodies in proximity left her addled by the mad chorus of their bodies' songs. Her one certainty, the puppy was dying. And I'll stop there. Great. Well, if someone listening hasn't heard about your new novel yet, how would you describe The Clockwork Dagger? Well, it's a combination of steampunk and epic fantasy. And people always ask me, well, you know, what's steampunk? And I've come up with the kind of idea that it's down Abbey with airships and healing magic. <laughs> Great. Well, um, as you just mentioned that, that um, you know, it is being marketed as a steampunk novel. And I was just curious, when you were writing it, did you have the steampunk genre in mind? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I love steampunk before it was called steampunk. My dad raised me on the, the horrible 80s version of Flash Gordon. And as a teenager, I loved Final Fantasy VI for Super Nintendo. And when steampunk became a genre, I was there pre-ordering Bone Shaker by Sheree Priest and the Parasol Protectorate novels by Gail Carriger. I, I was there and ready to read. And, and what is it about it that, that, uh, that appeals to you? Well, from an early age, I always loved historical fiction. Uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder, Patricia Beatty, all those books were my favorites as a kid. And then as a teenager, I really fell deeply into fantasy genre, like Dragonlance, Forgotten Realms, gosh, hundreds of others. I just couldn't stop reading them. And for me, steampunk really combines the best of both. It's that that detail and that depth of history and that sense of an of another place that's just fascinating. And then there's the magic and there's the the surprises that come with different dynamics and mythical creatures. That's great. Well, um, as you mentioned, and, and as it came up in the in the section that you read, Octavia Leander, the hero of your novel, is a healer. In, in a lot of fantasy literature, the healers are somewhat secondary characters. What what interested you to write about a healer? And see, that's something that's always stood out for me because I've loved healers from the time I was about twelve years old. When I was 12, I found Final Fantasy II, which is known as 4 in Japan, for Super Nintendo. And I loved the character of Rosa, who's a white wizard. And after that, I just, I loved healing magic. To me, it was the most powerful and profound thing. A few months before I first played the game, I had lost my grandpa to terminal illness. And I didn't realize it then. It wasn't a conscious thing, but there was definitely a relationship between my attraction to healing magic and my grandpa's death. And I always wanted to read a fantasy book that had a healer as a main character. And you don't find that. They're a convenient side character that the 
heroes go to when they need to be patched up. Or if the hero can heal themselves, it's just part of like a price package of other godlike gifts that they have. <laughs> and in video games, the healer's in the back row and one hit and they're dead. They're, they're regarded as a physical weakling. And I purposely wrote the Clockwork Dagger because I wanted a healer to be the hero. And I wanted her to be strong while at the same time compassionate. Sure. Well, well, I'm curious, was there a specific time? Can you pinpoint, was there a specific idea that, that, that led you to writing the clockwork dagger and sitting down and starting the novel? Well, I wrote a novel. I've wrote several novels before this one, most of which were trunked, but I had an urban fantasy novel with a healer as the main character. It was kind of like a superhero urban fantasy. And that's the one that led me to connect with my agent. And while that was on submission, I was really itchy to write a new novel. I wanted to write about another healer, but in a completely different way. And I was like, well, I love steampunk. Maybe I should write steampunk. And I hit on the idea of doing Murder on the Orient Express on an airship with a healer as the main character. And from that, I built the whole novel. That's great. Well, well, you just mentioned that you that you wrote some early novels which were were um, never published. What was that? What was that process like for you of of writing those novels and then kind of working your way up to um, writing and then obviously getting the Clockwork Dagger published? It was a very slow and painful process. I, from the time I was young, I always wanted to be a novelist. That was always the dream. And for a number of years, I just stopped writing and reading at all. And about 10 years ago, I resolved, you know, okay, I, I need to start writing again. I need to be true to myself. But I quickly found out my novels were horrible. <laughs> I, I, they wretched, stinky, horrible things. I mean, they, they were bad. So I made a conscious decision that I want to be a better writer. So I went back and I started working on short stories and kind of, you know, used that to hone my craft and started with For the Love publications and built up from there to tokens and semi-pros and finally making pro sales and also doing nonfiction anthologies like Chicken Soup for the Soul. And while I was doing that, I continued to work on novels so that eventually they sucked less. <laughs> <laughs> And went through and started using critique groups, which was a huge step for me because for a lot of years, I was just petrified to have anyone read anything that I wrote. And yeah, worked up to the point where finally I had something good enough to send out to agents and, you know, got representation and then started work on the Clockwork Dagger. That's great. Well, well, um, you you mentioned that those those novels were were bad. What why why were they bad? If you don't mind, kind of digging into that. <laughs> well, they weren't. A, they had original ideas to them, but I used a lot of stale cliches. I overwrote. I kind of from school there was this idea of you know okay you never you always can use variations of said you know, overdoing adverbs, trying to go for, you know, deep literary meaning and symbolism and everything. And it was just, I guess it's the, the way most people look at novels. It's, oh, you know, there's supposed to be meaning to everything and do all this. And it lost fact to find that 
it's a, supposed to be a fun story that's easy to read and not bogged down in, you know, three pages of description about this window that has no meaning later in the story, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a lot of it just came down to tightening it down, character motivations, cutting out description and getting to the what the actual story is. And and do you do you remember? I mean, obviously, what you're describing is something that that every writer um, has to go through. Um, do you remember any specific moments mm-hmm. along that writing path where you where you had kind of a uh, an epiphany about your writing that 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 um, that helped you kind of improve? Do you do you remember any of the specific, or is it just too gradual to pinpoint? It's very gradual, and I think once upon a time, I really believed that there would be this steady steady progression as a writer, but I've come to realize that, yeah, I do gradually improve, but also every story in every novel is completely different, and I will find completely new ways to screw up every time. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's kind of a frightening prospect. (laughs) it's, It's terrifying, especially for a novel. I mean, my gosh, when I started work on my sequel novel earlier this year, I went through like a month where I was kind of psyching myself up for it and just terrifying myself because it's like, can I do this? I'm writing under contract for the first time. Oh my gosh, am I going to completely screw this up? I have a deadline. Oh no. Because there's all this expectation behind it with writing under a contract with a deadline for, for the first time. Sure. And yeah, it's, I wish that there wasn't an epiphany moment. I mean, there are moments where I go like, wow, this is a really good story. I love it. I bet it'll sell. And then whenever I think that about a story, it always has a hard time selling. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, I'm, I'm the worst judge of things like that, I think. Sure. And, and did you find a critique group? Was it, was it, uh, um, was it an online group or was it a, a, a group that met face to face? I've done only online. I'm kind of in a, I'm out in the boonies on the west side of Phoenix. People joke that, you know, we're in California, not in Arizona. (laughs) So there's not a whole lot close by. But uh, for a number of years, when I was first really intensely starting to get into my writing, I was in the online writing workshop, which goes by OWW. And that was a fantastic place to learn how to critique and how to accept critiques. And then now I've been in the Codex Writers Group for a couple of years, which is a, a fantastic, amazing, supportive group for neo-pro short story writers and novelists. And I, they do novel writing contests every year, and I can post my short stories on there for critiques, and they have contests that we do as a group. And it's been, I, I wouldn't be here without their support, because there was a point when I was just starting on the Clockwork Dagger, when I was willing to give up. And their support is really what kept me going. And and how do you spell that? What, what's the what's the name again? Codex C O D E X. And you can Google it, and it comes yeah. right up. Uh, Luke Reed is the founder behind it, and yeah, it it the couple hundred people are in there, and it's kind of a who's who of writers who are rising in the field. Great. Well, you mentioned earlier that you stopped writing for for a period of time and then came back to it about 10 years ago. Do you mind talking about why you stopped? 
Do you, do you mind talking about why you stopped for that period of time? Oh, I, I'm, I'm completely open with talking about that. When I was about 18, you know, I'd gone through my teen years and I'd always secretly written little fiction pieces here and there. And I wrote down all of my dreams and I dreamed vividly and would sometimes spend hours a day just writing what I dreamed. And I always still nursed that, that need to be a fantasy novelist, but I never had the courage to send anything out. I had no confidence at all. I had a lot of family pressure on me that was very against fantasy. And some of that's still there, but that's okay. I'm kind of at a point now where as an adult, I can say, I respect your opinion. You respect mine. My faith is mine. It's okay. But back when I was 18, you know, 16, 17, 18, it really worried me and it hurt me because I wanted the respect and love of these family members. And they were basically telling me, your writing is too dark. It's depressing. It's, you know, you're basically, you're condemning yourself to hell by writing about magic like this. And that, that really bothered me. And then at the same time, I had a, a teacher, a professor at school for creative writing, who I respect a lot. And I brought a fantasy novel and I was reading it before class one day and he saw me and he kind of gave a double take and smeared and said, that's not a real book. And it took me back and I was like, it's not. And all those pressures on me against fantasy and against what I really wanted to write, I kind of felt lost. Like, okay, am I really not supposed to be doing this? So I was a wimp and I stopped. And what, what gave you the, the, um, what gave you the, the courage to, to come back to it and kind of um, uh, put those, those external judgments aside? Well, when I was 25, I gave birth to my son, and my husband was in the Navy, and he was deploying a lot. And even when he had so-called shore duty, he was never home. So it was me at home with the baby. And I was very overwhelmed, very insecure as a mother, and just felt like my brain was going to waste. It was just diapers and struggling and trying to find meaning to my life again. Even though I loved being at home with my son, there was just something that felt missing in myself. And I realized, okay, you know, I need to do, I need to actively do something to dig myself out of this pit. I looked at going back to school or maybe getting a part-time job. And I realized what I really wanted to do was go back to my childhood dreams and be true to myself. And so I slowly but surely started writing again. I, I did NaNoWriMo and that was a huge push for me to do national novel writing month in November. Mm -hmm. And I built up from there and started working slowly on short stories and things year round as my son was a, a baby and a toddler. And have you have you done the NaNoWriMo um, uh, multiple times? I actually, I think I did it nine years in a row. Oh, wow. And Yeah. And I, st I didn't do it, gosh, year before last was the first time I didn't do it. But at that point, I was writing, not, you know, doing whole books in other months of the year. Like this year, I did my sequel novel, Clockwork Crown, in January. I did the whole rough draft from January 1st to 31st. 83,000 words. So it was kind of my own personal NaNoWriMo. <laughs> That's great. 
Well, well, um, given your given your writing path that we've been talking about, what advice would you have um, now that you've had your your debut novel, The Clockwork Dagger, published? What advice would you have for aspiring writers who may be listening, who would one day have would one day want to have their own novel published? Be stubborn, and that's that's stubborn in a lot of ways. It means to strive to better your writing, better yourself, be stubborn in the face of feedback, know when to accept feedback and when to say, this is not the feedback that I need right now. And it's about sticking, making goals and sticking with it. Even if that goal is a hundred words a day, it's all about momentum. And that's kind of, my mantra is momentum. Every time I send a short story out there, that's momentum. If it comes back rejected, that's okay because it's still moving. It's still doing something. And that's really what I would encourage for any aspiring writer is be stubborn, keep sending the work out there, and keep putting yourself out there and making yourself vulnerable. That's great. Well, well, do you still read as much? I mean, you talked about reading fantasy and, and hundreds of fantasy novels. Or are you still reading? And if so, um, what have you read in the past year or two that, that, you would, that you would mention that made an impression on you? I read a lot now. <laughs> <laughs> that was one thing that was missing those years when I didn't write. I also didn't read very much. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I still had hundreds and hundreds of books that we had to cart back and forth and maybe moves across country. I mean, movers hated us. Oh man. I know that feeling <laughs> very well. Yeah. The movers walk into the room and you just see their face going, Oh no. And then they ask, have you read all of these? Uh huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was like, yeah, you're not getting out of this. I've read them and I'm keeping them. They're coming yeah, with me. Exactly. But, so so yeah. what have you read lately? Well, I read a lot. I've, read 90 something books this year so far and let's see in the past year i love the golden city series by j kathleen cheney it's historical fiction that's set in like early 1900s portugal and it's magic and almost like a mystery novel feeling but it has sirens which are you know kind of like mermaids and selkies and there's a little bit of romance, but at the core, it's just this fabulous historical fiction setting of Portugal with mystery and magic. And I love those books. Uh, the Seed of Magic, the second book, just came out in that series. And then I loved uh, Shield and Crocus by Michael R. Underwood, which is kind of like an epic fantasy superhero novel. And it's just it's set in this massive body of a fallen giant. That's miles and miles long, and there's a metropolis that's built in this corpse. And it's just a really cool concept. That sounds like it. That, that's great. I hadn't heard of uh, the Golden City series, so I'll definitely check that out. Well, uh, I, you, as you've mentioned earlier in this interview, you, you mentioned um, video games and, and their kind of impact on you. Are, mm -hmm. you still, are you still playing video games as well? Not so much, because I found that my best time to play games is right before bedtime. And that's also my best time to read. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that, that, yeah, that's been a sacrifice. I, a couple of years ago, I was really into Ragnarok online 
And I loved playing that. I always had a priestess character, which would be no shock to those who know me. But yeah, I had to stop playing. And like I have Dragon Quest Four that I recently downloaded for iPad because I love that game to death. And I've barely gotten to play it because I always feel guilty if, if I'm playing before bed because like I really, you know, I have 300 books stacked on my floor that I really need to read. So yeah, I, that's been a big sacrifice for my writing career. Gotcha. I understand. Well, again, we've been speaking with Beth Cato, author of The Clockwork Dagger. And The Clockwork Dagger is in bookstores now, so go grab a copy. And Beth, thanks for doing this interview. Thanks for having me. This has been a great talk, Jeff.